going to present a, a kind of case um, for, I'm going to look at a, a, a genotype cases, and I'm going, I'm going to read tonight, but, um, so we're, I'm going to start with a, a kind of attention to cases, and we'll see a shift within the presentation. So, art historians have not really known what to do with daguerreotypes. Tens of thousands of these ordinary portraits were made, ordinary images were made in the UK between 1841 and 1860, and 95% um, perhaps more were ordinary portraits of the middle class. The typical intellectual disdain shown by the representatives of my discipline, art history, for commercial culture is enhanced in this instance because the first historians of photography and quite a few of the more recent ones have always wanted to insert photography into a story about art. The status of the stain of commerce has meant that photo historians have had to work even harder than art historians to distance themselves from trade and build what Elizabeth Edwards has recently called a cosy canon. Walter Benjamin had grasped the problem in 1931 when he wrote, it is this fetishism, fundamentally the, an anti-technical notion of art, with which the theorists of photography have tussled through over a century, without, of course, achieving the slightest result, for they sought nothing beyond acquiring credentials for the photographer from the judgment seat which he'd already overturned. For those historians who want to follow Benjamin and consider photo photographs not as fetishized museum objects, but as material artifacts of use, it's a pressing task to establish new archives of everyday images. Here I, I have something in mind that's not really the, the kind of archive of utterances that Foucault termed a discursive formation, but what Molly Nesbitt calls the little archives of knowledge. My problem within this field is simply how to find enough daguerreotypes. The website Daguerrebase is useful, but the major museums haven't collected these commercial portraits and aren't really much help. For instance, there is no significant collection of the works of Richard Beard, who is the patent holder for the process and preeminent figure in the trade. Beard owned three London studios and controlled a network of other establishments throughout England and Wales, which were worked by licensed individuals. Beard may have been absent from these elite collections, but his daguerreotypes uh, and his patents uh, can't be avoided, and they're at the centre of my talk. So, the ambition of photographic historians, insofar as this constitutes a subfield, um, their attempt to find their own place in the sun has meant that daguerreotypes are invariably treated as if they were pictures. <coughs> They're cropped in reproduction to the edge of the mat or even stripped to mere plates. Cases are discarded, discarded from the visual field and sometimes just discarded. Many of the newer histories of photography aren't so dissimilar from this. They also focus on pictures, but the canonical images now run through the teeth of the theory machine. To quote Elizabeth Edwards again, um, the way that images make meaning has been couched largely, she says, in relation to theories of representation. However, there's been an increasing amount of work 
on photography and what she calls the multi-sensory image. She calls this a tactile archive. Her own work on photographic mounts is an outstanding example of such, uh, such work. And I'm going to focus here on a little tactile archive, but I'll develop the argument in a different manner and take it in another direction. One problem with the canonical history of photography is that no daguerreotype could ever possibly exist as a picture. You can't have daguerreotypes like this. Daguerreotypes are not images, but things, or object-image hybrids. This, of course, is true for all pictures. Paintings on the room exist on canvas and in frames. But so what I'll be presenting then is a particular case study of the hybrid image. The daguerreotype process is very stable. Plates are, in, are inclined to tarnish with exposure to air, but unlike the paper prints of the period, they don't fade or fox. 170 years on, they remain sharp, and turned in the hand, they still reveal the delicate grey picture that entranced Benjamin. While the process is stable, the mercury crystals on the plate surface are extremely fragile, and any contact easily wipes them away. As a consequence, plates are protected under glass and presented in cases, or more rarely in the UK, in frames. The plate is combined with a mat and a glass sheet to form a triple-layered sandwich secured or gummed together with paper or catgut. The mat provides a frame, but also serves the practical purpose of maintaining a gap between plate and glass. The sandwich is then sometimes inserted into a pan or a tray for extra protection before being introduced to the case or frame. On rare occasions, the case is also lined with, a, uh, with tin as an additional safeguard. During the 1850s, um, we tend to see this, this thing, which is a decorative brass preserver, probably an American in invention, uh, which was used uh, to hold the, the daguerreotype sandwich in place before being inserted into the case. So once you see this ribbed edge, it's usually a picture from the 1850s. So cases protect their images, they allow for storage and transport, but the traces and signs they bear are also integral to daguerreotypes. You can't understand them without attending to their cases. I'm going to describe these cases with a degree of attention usually reserved for pictures or texts. I'm referring to various plate sizes, so it's worth knowing that a full plate, based on the size of a standard sheet of Victorian glass, is six and a half by eight and a half inches. And then you have um, uh, reductions down um, in various sizes, down to the smallest, which is this size, and this is called the ninth plate. So um, a full plate is probably four times this size. Two types of case were used. The earliest of flip-top cases, uh, housing ninth plate daguerreotypes. Slightly later, bookstore cases were used for various sizes. Cases are simple wooden constructions made from separate components and glued together. The top and bottom faces are usually pieced from a number of timber strips. To these are added four outside edges for both halves 
and typically another four internal framing bars made of paper or wood are inserted into each case. It's not uncommon then for cases to be composed of 24 or 26 separate wooden parts. Case lids are sometimes domed, which required shaving the wooden surface, and this wooden construction is then covered with thin hide, usually glued into place. During the 1840s, red Morocco leather provided the standard covering, um, and in the following decade, in the 1850s, hues changed somewhat and cheaper leathers were employed. Initially, leather coverings were plain or carried uh, minimal impressed framing bars, but gilding and fancy tooling became more common from the later 1840s. Gilt stamps, dating from the mid-1840s, announced the maker. Um, and usually these appear on the back plain side of the case, but sometimes in the more expensive studios on the, more, on the domed front. So, sorry, typically cases uh, aligned inside the lid of the flip top or the verso of the, uh, the bookcase with cotton velvet and the framing bars are also wrapped with this velvet which is normally red. Under the plate sandwich there is often a layer of paper or fabric and in most instances the leather covering the, uh, binds the top and bottom half and provides a basic if fragile joint. But some better quality examples are fitted with brass hinges, and that's one of the ones I brought you to see because it's more stable. And then there's a variety, for instance, of fastenings, of hook and eyes, but there are some variants on that. So across much of Europe, um, daguerreotypes appeared not in cases, but in passepartout frames. While frames are much less common in the UK, they were also used. Usually these are boards, wood or paper, uh, paper mache, which have been covered with a black japanning and have an aperture for receiving the daguerreotype sandwich. This opening is surrounded by an ormolu border, either decorative or plain, and the sandwich is secured in place by brass teeth that fold around the back. The frame is suspended from a hanging ring, attached usually to an ormolu escutcheon. Typically the back was sealed with a sheet of paper, often containing the printed details of the studio, though in most surviving examples the paper covering has been stripped off in order to get at the daguerreotype. Photographic historians have been preoccupied with looking at pictures by Judith Margaret Cameron or Peter Henry Emerson, and we don't know anything near enough about the production of these integral objects. Cases preceded daguerreotypes and were used to house both miniature paintings and items of personal jewellery. In the first instance, cases were probably adopted and adapted from these pre-existing cases, um, establishing continuity with a long tradition of English miniature painting and association with precious objects. But because the tripartite sandwich is pretty thick, daguerreotype cases really need to be a bit deeper than those uh, for miniature paintings. And so pretty soon that they were, they were being manufactured specifically for the job. Um, we only have one good account of uh, case making, and that's from uh, Edward Anthony, a uh, description of his large, large case making uh, establishment in New York. 
Antony employed a complex division of labour, including the sexual division of labour, and that's evident in this image, um, but also labour-saving technologies combined with motive power. He claimed that his cases involved at least 20 distinct work tasks. In the UK, cases were probably made in small workshops um, using only hand tools. But, however, Beard did maintain a London manufactory in Islington to produce cameras and to supply a studio network with materials, and it's just possible that cases were made there. It's also likely that he obtained his cases from Thomas Wharton, the Birmingham manufacturer of cases and all new light items. We know Wharton supplied him with other materials. <coughs> During the 1850s, some case manufacturers advertised in the photograph in press, and we learned that cases ranged in price from four shillings per dozen for knife blade cases complete with mats, glass, and velvet pads, up to anything like 45 shillings for large, highly decorative versions. All in all, though, written sources tell us very little, and we need to turn to the surviving cases. So Richard Beard and his rival Antoine Claude both began making and selling daguerreotype portraits in 1841. I'll concentrate on Beard, but Claude will also make an appearance. In the latter part of 41, or early 42, Beard began to employ a range of mats for use with his daguerreotypes. It would be great, it would, it would help a lot to have a full morphology of these um, components. But that's a very difficult task simply because we don't yet have an accurate record of all the ones that were produced. This is, we're still piecing together these kinds of um, items. What, we can, what, we, what the, those we know do suggest is that the, in their variety, customers probably chose the mat by price from a list, adapting the portrait commodity to their taste and their purse. From those um, that we're familiar with, it looks like each of the variants can, can with either a rectangular or an oval fitting. So it looks like every one you could get in, the, in both variants. So this is the most simple and probably the earliest uh, mat, which is a plain top-arched mat, flat. Um, then pretty soon you get these uh, are the next phase which have this beveled surface. This is the rectangular one, exactly the same one here, but with the oval aperture. And you'll notice here, imprinted beard patented. So this is the first time you begin to get these marks, recognizing the ownership. This one, I've included as a variant of this one. It has beard patented stamped in a bar at the bottom. So you can see just straight away the, the variants of this mat. So just this single component is coming in a range of um, variations. Pretty soon, Beard started to employ um, a range of decorative mats. Now these serve two functions. Um, these are all ninth plate daguerreotypes, and what you can see here is that the mat is actually quite bigger. So what, what happens with these is that this is, these, are, uh, these are what are typically called luxury packs. They're bigger in the hand, although the daguerreotype is exactly the same size. Um, and so what you get here is a range of, of different decorative mats. I think you know, it's obvious this is the same one with the oval and rectangular fitting. 
this is the same one as this, but here we actually have um, embossed beer patent tea um, logo at the bottom. This is a different one still, and you can't see it in this reproduction, but it has beer patent tea along this bottom scroll. Right, so these are now bigger items, but using the same, uh, but using the same size daguerreotype. And what we know from, if you think of Zeitlin and, Zandl, uh, Zeitlin and Zabel's work, or um, you know, on flexible production in the 19th century, one of the key things that we can see here and that you get from their account is that it's precisely items like this where variation is likely to enter into the production process. So these are combinations between quite, high, quite highly standardised items, but with allowing for this various uh, varia for this variation within a kind of fixed pattern. And here are some more. Um, you know, and what you get is a whole range of these. You know, I'm not going to describe them in detail. But these various kinds of, uh, this is a different one with etch lines. This is probably the rarest one, one I've just picked up, and with this etch surface and this kind of a canvas in the corner. Um, this is the wife of, um, of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And I was really extraordinarily pleased when I found this. I took the plate, one of the things you have to do is, you, because there's all manner of things often in, underneath. So I took it out, and there was a folded up piece of paper in it this long that mentioned everyone that they'd taken in that month in the studio. And it lists all of the Marshall family from Leeds, and the Chancellor and his wife and so forth. So, uh, so I now have a detailed shooting script for that month. Um, just finding things like that makes doing this kind of work fun. Okay, so, um, so this is one element of the variation. And what I'm suggesting is that in order to understand the daguerreotype, you actually have to pay attention to from 1841 to 1844, bid sandwiches were regularly enclosed in Wharton pans. In 1841, Thomas Wharton, who we've just encountered, the Birmingham manufacturer, registered his design for a pan with the Board of Trade and Design Office, receiving certificate number 791. There is a heavy brass version embossed with royal crest and stamped T. Wharton with the design registration number and the registration plate of, uh, of um, 24th of August 1841. This heavy pan was variable in two sizes for receiving nine and sixth plates, and that's what these two are, these heavy ones. The third one is a cheaper cotton one, which um, is, is just a pressed copper rather than cast. It's very difficult to tell, but you can see here the, the wooden stamp. So only Beard had access to these pans, and any, pan, any daguerreotype that comes with a Wharton pan has to come from one of Beard's studios. We know this because in one instance, Wharton wrote to Beard telling him that one of his rivals was trying to buy, buy Wharton pans. So Wharton tipped off Beard that um, one of the other, other photographers was trying to acquire these materials. So... After 44, though, Beard ceased to use the Wharton pan. So it's a good way of dating some early daguerreotypes. And there are various reasons for thinking why that might be. Firstly, the design registration process had run out by then, which meant that uh, Beard was probably looking at an unprotected um, design, which meant that any of his rivals could take up that design. So it's possible that at that moment, 
um, he, he ditched the Wharton Pam. Um, but there are other changes that take place at the same time. One, to start with, he starts making larger daguerreotypes. So what we tend to see, I think, is that the beard patentee stamp at the bottom of the mat also disappears at the same moment. At the same time, what we find is that um, other series of features uh, on the cases come to replace these marks. For instance, um, inside the case, um, under the plate sandwich, we sometimes find a beard signature. These are strips of paint, paper printed with the word patentee in a shadowed font and hand-signed in blue ink or more rarely black ink. And these signatures are revealed through an oval cut in the case lining. At the same time, he started to uh, use a variety of stamps on these cases so that what we can see is that, you know, although the, the stamp changes as studios come and go, from around the late 1840s, all beard daguerreotypes are stamped on the case. Oh, a lot of them are stamped on the case, I'll have to refine that. So what we're seeing here is another series of um, authorial markings on the, on the daguerreotype. From the mid-1840s, we know that he was um, importing uh, Christoffel silver plates from Paris, and in at least one, this is the Christoffel mark here. Yeah. So in at least one instance, um, we can see that, stamp, that Beard had stamped on the plate his own name, experimenting again with another form of authorial mark. So what we have here is our Beard, and then overstamped again, Beard. So this is a, you know, what, in order to find this, this is how it comes, you take off the mount, you find that there's, the, and then just such a rare little mark like this, another indication of, um, of what, what he was doing. And then there's a whole series of ones which have no explicit marks whatsoever, um, and you, you know, they're just plain cases, you wouldn't know where they came from, um, but here's one that when you open it up, underneath the plate is a sheet of uh, green, or a fragment of a sheet of green paper um, announcing, advertising Beard's uh, three London studios and, you know, kind of announcing, um, we can date this one pretty accurately because it has the Manchester studio on it as well. So, you know, this is, this is from the later 1840s. Probably a disabled man. Beard also sold daguerreotypes in frames. I'm not going to take you through these in detail, but there are five distinguishing features on these frames. Um, so, as, as I've said, what you get is these, these plain boards, either in wood or papier-mâché, that are coated with a black japanning, and then there's a series of marks that go on them. So, first of all, there's the hanging ring. There's three variants of the hanging ring, and in this one, you can see it's stamped Beard Patented. Um, then what we have is what is this uh, all blue mount. This is the one which people uh, talk about most. It's called the dolphin and pheasant frame, or turf and surf if you prefer. prefer. But then it's got here a kind of beard painting on the edge here. So that's the second one, is that the all blue mounts can, are sometimes marked. However, one of the problems is that all manner of beard 
mounts and, and framing devices, the mats, are inserted into these frames, as are walking cases. So sometimes you can have a daguerreotype that has no um, authorial marks on it at all, but then when you open it up, it's in a, it's in a walking case, which means it's also a big daguerreotype. Um, and then the last one, very rare, but the last one is the, uh, is the paper sheet, um, which, uh, you know, kind of seals the back. And you can see what I meant when I said that people pierce through them to, to get to the daguerreotype. But again, this is, this is a beard daguerreotype. And it's actually interesting. It has a lot of details about, about the system as well. Right. So... So what we can see here, I think, is that, um, that what happens from the period that Beard's, uh, you know, is that, let me put this another way, Beard's authorship begins to migrate from one surface to another. But, there, but in all of these, there are some kind of mark of, um, of authorship and, uh, and, and sort of, a kind of attribution. So actually, if you don't pay attention to the cases, you're never going to know what's going on, right? It, all of these things are anonymous without the cases and their markings. Case histories and case studies occupy a prominent role in approaches to culture and society. From Freud's studies Dora, Ratman, or Little Hands, to the case book of Sherlock Holmes, or Panofsky studies in iconology, the case appears as a structuring mode of knowledge. There are social science manuals on case methodology, legal primers concerned with case law, and medical case histories. Cases abound in my discipline, art history. We teach our students to write case studies. I've just done a tutorial with the MA student suggesting how, about, how one might go about a case study. So what is a case? Historical epistemologists have recently produced compelling studies of objectivity, evidence, documents, notebooks, and other modes of knowing and presenting. But little attention has been paid to what Frederick J. Schwartz calls the culture of the case. In 2007, two special issues of the journal Critical Inquiry were dedicated to the case, and in her introduction to these volumes, Laurent Bolland offers some gnomic and stylish observation, but she seems merely to say the cases are narratives. There are some good papers in the issue of critical inquiry, but nothing that really gets to grips with the question, what is a case? Of course, what we do have is Foucault. And interestingly, it's Foucault's work on power knowledge, rather than the currently fashionable archaeology of knowledge, which, produce, which addresses the technology of the case. As is well known, discipline and punish argues that during the 19th century, a new conception of criminality came into focus. This claim parallels his account in the history of sexuality of the emergence of the homosexual subject. That is to say, for Foucault, a novel type of subject was defined whose very being or identity is criminal or homosexual. Before this time, Foucault claims, there were no criminal subjects, merely people who committed illegal acts, just as there were no homosexuals, only people engaged in prohibited acts with others of the same sex. The deviant or aberrant criminal 
was produced as a psychological or bio biological type through the disciplines of modern knowledge, anthropology, biology, physiognomy, psychology, and so forth. This account should be well known to photographic historians from the work of John Tagg, Alan Sekula, and David Green, who in the 18, 1980s all applied this argument to photography. For Foucault, though, and this is the point I want to make, the writing of cases played a crucial role in defining the new regime of subjects. In Discipline of Punish, he writes, the examination, surrounded by all its documentary technique, makes each individual a case. A case in which at one and the same time constitutes an object for a branch of knowledge and a hold for a branch of power. Similarly, uh, um, he said of the murder confession at the heart of Ipeer Riviere that what interested him was that it was a dossier, that, it, that is to say a case, an affair, um, an event that provided the intersection of discourses. According to Foucault, the technique of writing and constructing cases is central to the constitution of new subjectivities. The case presents a particular dispositif that renders criminals or homosexuals visible and knowable. The photograph is only one element of the case file, and the camera, I would suggest, is not an optical. This is the kind of brilliant account that we associate with Foucault. And I'm not going to go over again the strengths and weaknesses of the account of power, subjectification, and visibility. I just want to say that he's surely right to claim that cases entail judgments, evidence, and individuation, all points strangely missing from Berlant's argument. The term case history and case study began to be used in English later than the moment I'm considering from the 1870s in both medicine and law. But the culture of the case has a much longer history. Cases involve investigations of individuals under particular circumstances of disease or legal restraint. And while I don't want to minimise the medical di dimension, here it seems helpful to stress um, the idea of the case as models on trials in which advocates advance a claim, individuals are cross-examined, witnesses are called, evidence is weighed, and a judgment proffered. Usually these cases involve both accuser, plaintiff or prosecutor, and defendant. And as the etymology of the, of the term suggests, a case always involves a point of contingency in which an occurrence befalls an individual who becomes an example. The word case um, comes from the Latin to mean fall, to fall over. So it's quite interesting to think through the implication of that. Well, Foucault grasped the central role of the case in producing accounts of modern subjectivity, I think there are two related problems with his account here, not to talk about the meta-theoretical problems. First, his argument does not travel well. The English common law tradition is based on case histories, but is indifferent to subjectivities. The common law tradition evaluates acts, not motives or psychologies. While the disciplines have plenty to say about criminality or homosexuality, what they said had little bearing on legal cases, which attended to acts, not forms of being or subjectivity. From Foucault's point of view, 
the English law is a strangely pre-modern episteme. But while the common law tradition may have been wrapped in Latin and the trappings of feudal landholding, it proved remarkably accommodating to what political economists and law lords alike called commercial society. The UK is not an ancien regime. Secondly, Foucault's account rather typically and in a related fashion passes over economy or property. In English case law, this just isn't plausible. Subjects, insofar as they exist in English law, are defined by property claims. Briefly, there are three categories of property in English law. First and most important is what's called fixed or immovable property. Basically, this means possession of land or tenement. As Sir William Blackstone, one of the most influential English law lords, put it, land comprehends all things of a permanent or substantial nature. This is why most forms of illegal appropriation, sometimes called theft, are in English law um, regarded as forms of trespass. It's because the key category of property is land. Right? So, um, so that's why we trespass on another's property. The possession of land was, until the end of the 19th century, taken as a guarantee of independence and the condition of the franchise. The second category is chattel property, which refers to fixed or movable property, which can be alienated and covers everything from, pers from personal possessions to vendable commodities. It's worth recalling that under certain conditions, people can be chattel property or slaves, and that self-possession is a particular form of property right assigned by the law and the state. Self-determination is not an automatic attribute of the subject. The third estate of property, and the one that we're particularly concerned with, is immaterial property. Which and this covers everything from intellectual property to income on investments, interest on mortgages, or rights to tithe payments. Immaterial property is a right to intangible or incorporeal property. The idea of immaterial possession is rooted in Locke's empirical philosophy of mind or knowledge and is elaborated in Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. Blackstone wrote, corporeal property consists of such as affect the senses, such as may be seen and handled by the body. Incorporeal things are not objects of sensation. They can neither be seen nor handled and are creatures of the mind as only exist in contemplation. And so immaterial property, the ownership of things which aren't physical, which aren't touchable. And just to make the case clear, we can take the example of patent medicine. Most of us who have seen the movies, the old-fashioned Western movies, of course know that patent medicine is just snake oil, but the, the point is that patent property um, doesn't protect physical pills, but the, we, the pills are chattels. They're movable, saleable commodities. Patent property, patent pills, protects the recipe or the idea for making them. And in the same way, individual daguerreotypes with the chattel property of their owners, but the right to manufacture them belonged to Beard. And so he was the sole um, propriety owner of the daguerreotype, even though you could own an individual daguerreotype. In the opening paragraph 
of his short history of photography, Benjamin pointed out, pointed to the central place of patent law in the emergence of photography. His account is factually inaccurate, but as is so often the case, Benjamin was on the case before anyone else had even started thinking. During the 1840s, Beard conducted six legal cases in his campaign to secure the daguerreotype property rights for the territory of England, Wales, and the town of Berwick upon Tweed. Just as importantly, he stopped others using this property. With, in these six cases, uh, he, with the exception of Clodagh, he won all of these cases and prevented these other people from making daguerreotypes. So the only people who were allowed to make daguerreotypes except Clodagh were uh, people who were licensed by Beard. They had to pay for a license and sometimes what's called a, a rolling fee, that is that they sometimes also paid for every daguerreotype that they made. So basically this is a network of territory that he controls and I've argued in another um, in another essay that um, the beard is in fact a space of collective authorship shaped by the commodity form. So that you know what you're looking at here is a is a kind of a space of ownership. So what I'm trying to do here is to combine a critical legal approach to daguerreotype property with a kind of perverse connoisseurship. Involved a detailed comparative study of these banal commodities. My aim is to bring together a warped, is, is to bring these together in a kind of warped historic, art historical ekphrasis, process of description that's somehow perverse. It's looking at the wrong objects. The intention is to examine the production of subjects in case histories, particularly those subjects known as authors, artists, or photographers. But unlike much recent work on performativity, self-making, or self-fashioning, I'm not interested in just the success stories. I'm as concerned with those persons who were denied biographies, blocked from working with photography, and lost from history. In part, at least, I want to offer a history of photography from below. Property law prohibits performance as much as it produces it. Some historians have argued that self-possession entailed a, um, a subject modelled on property claims, but this isn't quite right. In the period I'm examining, self-possession required actual property ownership. Freedom and independence, respectability and authority, class and gender are entwined in this conception of representation through property. Three frightened away or prohibited unauthorised users, and women were excluded from making daguerreotypes under the laws of couverture. To take this last example, Prior to the women, Married Women's Property Act of 1870 and 1882, married women were considered as distinct legal entities. Married women were deemed to be represented or covered by their husband, the metaphors uh, um, telling, and they were not at liberty to make legal contracts. I'm sure you know this. As such, the femme couverte, as the married woman was known, could not enter license agreements with Beard. There are two known women who made daguerreotypes in this period, Miss, Na Miss Jane Nina Wigley and Mrs Anne Cook, who was a widow. So both were femme sole, or uncovered women. It's said that um, Beard regretted having sold a licence to Wigley when she began advertising as the maker of the best large coloured daguerreotypes in Britain. 
I haven't yet found one, so I can't vouch for her claim, but I'd like it to be true. In the last years of the patent, other women began to operate, but we don't yet know the conditions under which they did so. So it's very difficult yet to, to find out what was going on. But in other examples, to escape Beard's territorial monopoly of the daguerreotype, some would-be photographers immigrated to places as near as Scotland or the Channel Islands or as far as Brazil, which were places which weren't controlled by his patent. At least two daguerreotypists At least two daguerreotypists took to crying as a way of making a place for themselves. Um, one, John Henry Greatrex, uh, used his studio facilities to start forging banknotes and then fled to New York. <laughs> Unfortunately for him, he was returned by the American authorities and received a, a prison sentence, of, well, received a sentence of 20 years transportation to Australia. Richard Lowe, who ran a pretty high-end establishment in Cheltenham, employed his credit worthiness to obtain expensive items of plate and other valuables, then boarded a Liverpool steamer and sailed away. Taking another route, Jabez Hogg, an operator and legal witness for Beard, who subsequently um, emerged as an opponent of the patent restriction, became an eminent ophthalmologist and writer on eye diseases. So the, the picture I showed you of the wife of the uh, treasurer is made by Hogg. It's one of the very, very few that has the maker's name scratched on the back of the plate. So that one is a Javis Hogg. J.F. Goddard, Beard's chief chemist and legal witness, ended his days as a pauper living in an almshouse. Are these people's stories less important than the acclaimed daguerreotypists known to photographic historians? It's probably evident, but to make my uh, argument clear, I'm using my little, argue, little archive of daguerreotypes to advance a materialist case. It has two components, and both are methodological. First, materialism is widely misrepresented in the work of the so-called new materialists and object-orientated historians. While he didn't have this body of work in mind, Etienne Balibar recently criticised the conflation of materialism and materials or, or of property and things. This is an error that judicial thinkers uh, refer to as physicalism rather than materialism. Materialism is not concerned with physical things as such, but with social relations that are mediated by things. Historians of culture, science and technology, working on patents and often drawing on Bruno Latour and actor network theory, have recently taken to claiming that intellectual property is not in fact a species of property at all, but a grant or conventional gift. The distinction makes no sense. Property is a legal category, and all property, real, chattel, and immaterial, is edged around with rights or legal conditions. All possession is an artificial right, sanctioned by law and guaranteed by force. Land ownership was subject to primogenitor, entail, dower, or thieves. <coughs> it was confiscatable in cases of treason, and if an owner died intestate, it returned to the crown. Immaterial property is granted for a specific, 
uh, duration, and this is part of the central case of these uh, new materialist historians as to why it is property. But then so is leasehold property. Is a flat not property? Because it's, it too is, due, is subject to leasehold, right? So a clerical living was immaterial and fixed for a number of years. So was an assignment of land or the right to take fees or emoluments. In the case of office holding, you're distrained from doing just what you like, even with forms of chattel property, be they heirlooms, slaves, or livestock. The law rings around all forms of property. Married women could not possess any of these things, even with the exception, with the exception of personal heirlooms. All forms of property exist as right, not as things, a right in the sense of an enforceable claim to use or benefit of something, as one um, legal thinker has put it. I opened by claiming that daguerreotypes were images, image, sorry, were not, were, not, were not images, but image-object hybrids. This claim now has to be qualified. Daguerreotypes are immaterial things, or perhaps better, their objecthood is intrinsically linked to the law of immaterial property. They are forms of immaterial property embodied in objects, just like patent pills or patent leather shoes. Daguerreotype cases uh, offer protection for mercury salts, but there are also legal categories. Features of the daguerreotype that I began with, embossed mats, stamped cases, marked on with fr uh, frames and rings, cast and pressed pans, paper signatures, labels, marked plates, were introduced when Beard's patent was a matter of, of uh, legal contention. Beard patentee migrated from one surface to another. These authorial trappings are claims to property. They mark territorial borders enforced by the institutions of the state. They assert Beard's control, his property and his authorship, and just as significantly, they represent closures of possibility for others. Our tactile archive, archive can't involve a flat ontology, any account of networks of actors that sidesteps hierarchies of power, capital, racialized and gendered capitalism, or the nation state is analytically purblind and descriptively weak. All physical things exist in and through the structures of the state. This brings me to, shortly to my second, um, second part of my case. This is a qualification of new historicists thinking on subjectivity or subjectification. And that's to say that I take performativity or self-fashioning not simply as a, um, available equally to all persons. Social hierarchies, authority networks, access to property and other resources empowered some persons to style themselves but prevented others from doing so. Beard's resources included those technical specialists in his employ, Goddard, Johnson, Hogg and others, these men te testified in legal cases and defended his claims, and they contested the arguments employed by his rivals. Crucially, the law was his resource, but, but also um, not only the possession of patent property, but his ability to pay for expensive legal cases. Right? This is a major resource for him, his ability to take people to court. Performance requires a stage, and that our stage is framed by property, underpinned by property law. Those against whom Beard that pursued legal cases involved some who found ways around the restrictions by migrating, by doing other things, but most did not. 
Many of them were simply put, de- put out of business. These men were not allowed biographies, and many more did it, didn't even get to begin. So briefly, to conclude, back to object cases. I'll end with a few short cases to make the point. First, after 1846, Daguerre type studios emerged proclaiming the names of makers on their cases and mats. It's just a few. I characterise this event as the rise of the names known in photographic history. Not much is understood by, about the legal arrangement by which they operated. However, the lack of secure information hasn't prevented much loose speculation, suggesting that Beard's hold on his territory was failing. Historians of photography have suggested he overreached himself with his expensive persecution, prosecutions and persecutions, bringing on his bankruptcy of 1849. It's said that he ceased to pursue uh, infringers of his property in the later 1840s, finally leaving the field open to talent. Freed from constraint, it's claimed photography was able to begin its inevitable ascent, as if it were there all the time pupating. So this story makes for a nice Whig liberal um, morality tale, binding taste and personal liberty to laissez-faire economics. In this romance, Beard receives just punishment for restraining the rise of photography and sullying art with commerce. Unfortunately for the, object, for the advocates of this ideological, this little story, none of it's true. Why no one has bothered to check the bankruptcy case itself is very odd. So in October 1849, he received a bankruptcy ruling, but by June 1850, he was issued with a second-class certificate. This means, that, well, the court ruled he was partially to blame. He'd settled all his debts. He carried on operating so the standard account of the history of Dr. Swank. Whatever the truth of the bankruptcy story, though, there are indications that Beard assisted with his uh, existing business model of licensing studios, extending it even to London in the 18, late 1840s. The evidence comes from cases and frames. This is a um, large quarter plate um, by uh, Barrett at Regent Street, an extremely... Um, Brilliantly coloured, uh, daguerreotype. At this time, Barrett employed Mancian, who was probably the most acclaimed miniature painter in Britain, to colour his daguerreotypes. So, under any criteria, um, Barrett ought to constitute one of the of the new names that's independent of Beard. But open it up, and what do we find? There's a Beard signature under the under the plate. The only other known Barrett that I've seen is in a, a small British museum, and that has exactly the same format which you open it as a business project. This is a nice portrait of an older man by Cornelius Sharp. Um, you can see the standard framing uh, you know, system. Turn it over, and what do we find? Um, a label that is particularly very informative, this one. So, what we find is that Sharp is making beards, paper photographic portraits. So, at the same time that he's, you know, he's now set up ostensibly in a period when there shouldn't be any prosecutions, when there shouldn't be any kind of um, further wrangles, he's still making beard. And this is the only known example, but this is a beard signature in this round 
patent to our beard. So he's also making beards. And yet, at the same time, I mean, you know, kind of, there's also a lot of, um, this is the pomfrey that I showed you, um, that we've passed around. Fortunately, I think it's got my thumb light in the middle of the glass, so, um, so on the scan. But so what we're seeing here is a number of instances in which it looks like um, that there's still some ambiguous authorship going on here. But actually, the moment we begin to look, uh, we find much more evidence for this. So just to give you the examples uh, from 1849 from and after, from the period of the, um, of the bankruptcy case, uh, you look through the regional press, and what do we find? Um, in 1849, Beard repurchased the license of the Cheltenham studio, which he sold to Richard Lowe, who we saw absconding with a large amount of plate. Arthur Hall was, the license, was licensed by patent to work in Gloucester, 49 to 50. George Brown, Ian, made Beard's photographic miniatures in Newcastle from 50 to 55. Pumphrey, licensee in York, 1850. J.J. Blake in Davenport from 41 by Queen's Royal Letters Patent. Frederick Worcester marked, worked in Coventry in 52 by arrangement with the patentee. Mr. Brunel, Royal Coat of Arms, advertised a provincial tour in 53. Of course, and there, there, are, there are more and more of these. So the argument in the history books that um, the beard relinquished or lost control seems to have no ground to it at all. These names were licensees. It's highly probable that they all were, even the most acclaimed makers. And this is a scandalous uh, suggestion, uh, such as Kilburn and Mail. They were probably still making beard daguerreotypes. So then, just to go to my final case, what to be so this more. Just to go to my final case, I'll be specific four of them. These were made by uh, Antoine Claudet in 1843. We know that because the, the date is scratched on the back of one of the plates. And these are probably betrothal portraits. I can't see a wedding ring, but um, these are uh, a set of four, the same, two of the same woman, two of the same man. Um, so they probably have them made at the point of their engagement. So, you know, a lot of effort has gone into the staging and construction of these. They have the same internal case, but, you know, there's a lot to be said about the portraits, but I just want to look at the cases, because what you see is that every one of them is different. And so what you see, even to the extent that one of them doesn't have the, um, the studio um, stamp. So in each case, each of these four cases is a different case. So what I suggest on the basis of this is that Claude was the one person I'm concluding on this, who was able to evade, through a legal technicality, he evaded the patent that restricted him to um, three sets of apparatus. So he could work, and he was allowed to make daguerreotypes, but he couldn't use more than three sets of daguerreotype equipment. That meant he couldn't pursue the kind of uh, business strategy that Beard went for, which was this big network of studios. The most he could ever run was three studios. In fact, he only ever ran two. So what we see with, with um, Claude instead is instead of going for a kind of business model which is about kind of, uh, you know, mass studios, he goes for high-end production. Ultimately ending up on Regent Street, 
and being made um, Fellow of the Royal Society and uh, being awarded the Legion d'Honneur. So what we see here, I think, what I would want to argue is that in this instance, there is another form of legal ownership being stamped on these cases. But in this instance, it's a form of distinction. So this is a form of also of authorship and claims to property and propriety, but this time structured around um, quality and inventive, uh, inventiveness. So what I would want to argue is that this is precisely the strategy of exception and a structure of self-possession is again stamped on the cases. Closet was able to fashion a glittering career for himself. However, this, um, this didn't mean that this was a superior artistic vision. It was, I think, a strategy of an exception that emerged from a loophole in the law. Historians of photography have perpetuated a simple misrecognition, treating contrasting business strategies and legal opportunities or resources as if they were matters of art or sensibility. In part, they've done so because they've not attended to cases, physical or legal. Thank you.